One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Today is Wednesday, October 16th, 2019. On this day in 1869, laborers digging a well in Cardiff, New York, discovered a massive stone man buried beneath the earth. They dubbed him the Cardiff Giant, believing they'd uncovered an ancient, supermassive human. But it was soon exposed as nothing more than an elaborate hoax. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. Every day, we flip back the calendar to this date years ago and recount one event from true crime history. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Lainey Hobbs. Lainey hosts ParCast's show, Crimes of Passion, as well as another podcast, True Crime Fan Club. Hello, everyone. I'm thrilled to be here and to be working with you again, Vanessa. Me too. Lainey's joining me to discuss some of the historical aspects of the discovery of the Cardiff Giant hoax, while I'll cover the narrative. Thanks, Vanessa. I'm so excited to dive into the strange con of the Cardiff Giant. Now, let's go back to October 16, 1869, around 9 in the morning. Paul had worked for William Newell before. Whenever William asked for help with extra labor around the farm, Paul gladly accepted. William was fairly well off and typically paid a decent wage for rather simple work. It was often difficult work, but it was simple nonetheless, and today seemed no different. As Paul and his friend Thomas approached William's home, he noticed a pair of shovels leaning against the wall near the door. Paul figured the job must be digging today probably a ditch on the far end of William's field. But when William answered the door, he was quickly corrected. Good to see you two, said William, picking some meat out from between his teeth. William handed them each a shovel, then beckoned them to follow. The missus and I have been wanting a well dug around here for a while now. Paul was bewildered by this. You mean a second well? We already dug you one years ago, didn't we? For a split second, Paul saw William's brows raise, almost as if he was panicked. Yet as quickly as that look on William's face had arrived, it departed. He stammered slightly before saying, Yup, but a second well will do us well. Paul squinted at William. Something seemed off about what he was saying, but so long as William was paying them, it didn't much matter if things were strange. William led them to the barn, then casually guided them around to the side. 
There was a broad, open piece of land that provided a short walk to the entrance of the barn. Paul thought this must definitely be the place. Then William said, just a little further, I'd like it around here, near this tree. Paul was bewildered once again. Not only was this a longer walk, but digging near a tree would mean they'd have to cut through roots. That wasn't something people typically did for a simple well. But William explained, roots are there because the water is there. Then he wiped his brow and spit on the ground. He said, I'll leave you to it then. As it starts to warm up, feel free to fetch yourselves water from the other well. And, you know, if you find any buried treasure down there, be sure to let me know. Paul and Thomas locked eyes as William walked away. Then Thomas shrugged and planted his shovel in the ground, getting to it. Paul quickly did the same. The soil was clearly moist as he lifted the first shovelful from the ground. It was good for farming and a decent spot to dig a well. Perhaps this wasn't such a bizarre job after all. They continued to dig, widening their initial hole, but as they shoveled deeper into the ground, Paul felt his shovel hit something hard. At first, he thought it might have been a tree root, but as he stooped down to wipe away the dirt, he saw dense white stone, and it looked like a human toe. Paul called Thomas over and pointed it out. He said, I declare, some old Indian has been buried here. They moved quickly as each shovel full of dirt revealed something new. First, it was a toe connected to a foot, a shin, a thigh. They had found themselves a buried, perhaps even petrified man. Only this man was gigantic, clearly standing at over 10 feet tall. Once they had uncovered his whole body, Paul and Thomas stared at it in awe. He was weathered down as if he had been buried for centuries. His skin was white and calcified, but it looked like blue veins ran all throughout. Most bizarrely, his face was pocked, as if his pores had even turned to stone. His legs were twisted and his arm was pulled across his stomach. His lips turned slightly upwards in what might have been a smile or a grimace. Paul had never seen anything quite like this before. He was almost positive the world hadn't either. Coming up, the world flocks to view a petrified giant. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the story. On October 16, 1869, two men digging a well on farmer William Newell's land made a shocking find. A 10-foot-tall man, apparently calcified and preserved through the ages, 
lying only a few feet under the ground. My guest host, Lainey, is here to discuss what happened when the Cardiff giant was first discovered and how it turned from a mysterious marvel to a clear crime. Thanks, Vanessa. After the giant man was unearthed, people from the nearby town of Cardiff, New York, flocked to Gander at the sight of him. Word spread so quickly and so feverishly that the men abandoned their work just to get a glance. Women came with babies in tow to avoid missing out on the fun. Visitors to the giant insisted that Newell's should let it stay above ground. After all, it likely had some historical and scientific significance. Because the land around Cardiff was known for its many fossil beds, some even speculated that the man himself was prehistoric. They believed he might have been a calcified giant who had been petrified after drowning in a swamp in ancient times. Some even thought this giant might be perfect evidence of a line from the book of Genesis about giants who had once walked the earth. Begrudgingly, Newell agreed to keep the giant on his land. Of course, as a compromise, he wasn't simply going to let people walk across his property for free. Instead, he set up a tent above the giant and charged people 50 cents to gaze at the magnificent find. Newspapers printed grand headlines calling the Cardiff giant a new wonder and a singular discovery. As word spread past Cardiff, university professors came to examine it. Scientists quickly surmised that the Cardiff giant could not be a petrified man. The land it was found beneath was not conducive to petrification, and the marble the giant was carved from could not be the natural result of such a process. Instead, they speculated that it was a statue carved and abandoned in antiquity. They believed that it was an important potential key to the history of the region. With this added boost of legitimacy, word spread across New York even faster and further. Within the first week of Newell opening his tent, over 2,500 people came to see this amazing historic wonder. Sensing a lucrative business opportunity, a banker named David Hannum offered to purchase the giant for an extravagant sum of money. Some sources claim he offered $23,000. Others claim he offered $30,000, worth more than $500,000 today. Whatever the case may have been, the extreme amount of money convinced Newell to make the sale. Hannum then shipped the giant all across New York State, charging people a dollar a head to behold the giant. He drew such enormous crowds, another showman took notice. P.T. Barnum, founder of the Barnum & Bailey Circus, wanted in on the proceeds from the Cardiff giant. He offered to purchase a giant for $50,000, Yet, even though this possibly doubled Hannum's initial purchase price, he refused to sell. Barnum, not wanting to be upstaged, secretly commissioned a sculptor to create a near-identical replica of the Cardiff giant. After multiple acts of espionage and subterfuge, Barnum eventually began displaying the real Cardiff giant. Barnum's giant pulled in larger crowds than Hannum's ever had. In order to stop this duplicitous competition, Hannum sued Barnum for calling the original giant a fake. He claimed that it was Barnum's giant that was a fake and thus should not be allowed to be shown. Little did Hannum know, his giant was a fake as well. 
One year before the Cardiff giant was discovered on William Newell's land, William had been in contact with one of his distant relatives, a man named George Hole. Hole was an atheist, and he had gotten into a particularly heated argument with a revivalist preacher. The preacher had taken a literal interpretation of a line from the book of Genesis that spoke about giants who once walked the earth. To get back at the preacher and what Hole perceived as the preacher's gullibility, Hole swore he would trick people into believing that they had found an actual giant. He purchased a massive block of gypsum for $3,000 under the pretext of constructing a statue of Abraham Lincoln. He then hired a sculptor to construct his giant. The sculptor carved the man out of gypsum with Hole posing as the model. And once the sculpting was finished, Hole poured sulfuric acid on the giant to make it look weathered. To really drive home the illusion, Hole used a special chisel to drill tiny holes into the giant's face to make it look like he had calcified pores. For the final touch, Hole and Newell buried the giant on Newell's land, then left it underground for nearly an entire year. When the time was right, Hole sent Newell a letter telling him to have some unsuspecting workers dig him a well. Hole, Newell, and the anonymous sculptor who had created the giant all split the profits from the sale to David Hannum. But once Hole heard about the lawsuit between Hannum and P.T. Barnum, he knew it was time to come forward. He publicly admitted the giant find was a hoax. Of course, instead of feeling any guilt towards deceiving the people, Hole gloated. His hoax had gone wonderfully, and he laughed in the face of any and all who thought the Cardiff giant might have been real. Plus, he'd swindled Hannum out of a good deal of money. With Hole's confession that the giant was a hoax, Hannum's lawsuit failed. He couldn't force Barnum to stop displaying his fake giant unless he agreed to stop displaying his own. In the end, the court's declaration did not matter. With the revelation of the hoax, people stopped flocking to see the giant. As it became less and less profitable, the Cardiff giant was passed between various owners before finally finding a place to rest in the Cooperstown, New York Farmer's Museum. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks again, Lainey, for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You can find my podcast, Crimes of Passion and True Crime Fan Club on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information on the Cardiff Giant, check out our episodes of Unexplained Mysteries that delve deeper into giants. And for other tales of hoaxes, check out the ParCast original, Con Artists. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Today in True Crime for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. 
Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Carly Madden. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Giles Hovseth. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 